Hello, and welcome to the Urology COVID Lecture Series podcast, brought to you by the UCSF Department of Urology. In today's episode, we have Dr. Raj Pruthi from the University of California of San Francisco, leading a panel discussion regarding ARES for bladder cancer. On the panel, we have Dr. Sam Chang from Vanderbilt University, Dr. Sia Dineshment from Keck Medicine of USC, Dr. Jeffrey Nix from the University of Alabama at Birmingham, and Dr. Sarah Sutka from the University of Washington. I wanted to welcome everybody to uh, our in the COVID lecture series for November 16th. Uh, and tonight we're going to have a panel discussion on ERAS for bladder cancer with uh, uh, Dr. Chang, Dr. Chang, Nix, uh, Dinesh Bond, and Sutka. And I'll have each of them kind of introduce themselves uh, and we'll kind of move on to, um, to this agenda, looking a little bit at background of ERAS. And we'll try to take this in, in three different steps, pre-op, peri-op, and uh, post-operative care. So I'll, I'll turn it over to the most senior member of the panel, Dr. Chang. <laughs> there was no, actually, he, he did the hesitance just to be kind to me. There was actually no doubt, um, but he acted like he had to think about that. Uh, <laughs> for those of you who don't uh, know me, which is probably everybody, uh, I'm Sam Chang, I'm a urologist at Vanderbilt. And uh, thank you for uh, allowing me part of, of this panel here. Raj, I appreciate it very much. All right. Okay. Are we going in order of age, Raj? <laughs> yeah. I, I presume I'm, I'm next. So I'm Sia Donishman. I'm at uh, uh, USC. I'm director of urologic oncology. Very interested in this topic. So. Yeah. And um, uh, Sarah, I will assume uh, you don't ask a lady your age, so I'll assume I'm, I'm next. Um, <laughs> this is Jeff Nix. I am a lowly urologist at UAB. Uh, I uh, also uh, have always had an interest in enhanced recovery uh, since being trained under the auspices of Dr. Preeti there, your new leader. So uh, this is a topic that's near and dear to me. And I'm Sarah Sutka. I'm at the University of Washington, and this, is, this has been a big priority for me too. Um, so really excited to be here. Thanks for having me. Great. Well, thanks. Um, just, just to kind of as, as a mode of introduction, uh, I think ERAS pathways, they're intended to improve patient outcomes through the implementation of well-defined, multimodal, multidisciplinary set of pre-, peri-, and post-operative interventions to try to minimize the complications uh, of surgery. And I think the concept of ERAS is no longer novel. The earliest applications are what were called clinical care pathways and some of Dr. Chang's early articles or fast-track recovery has been well over 20 years. And some of the earliest work was done by Dr. Chang at Vanderbilt on testicular bladder and prostate cancer over 15 years ago. And Sam, I'll turn it over to you to discuss a little bit of the history of ERAS yeah, before at we least, talk about the benefits. Yeah, I mean, we uh, we were, I guess, ERAS before ERAS was cool and before it was called ERAS. Uh, but but it was uh, basically Jay Smith and, and Mike Cook, the chair at Indiana, who really actually took literature from the colorectal uh, groups, from actually some OBGYN literature, just looking at uh, different ways. And at that time, we, we called it a clinical care 
pathway. And it was an attempt uh, initially actually to try to codify care. It was to decrease variation. It really was a initially a cost savings uh, type of move. And it started off with radical prostatectomy when I was, uh, oh, by that I was basically in kindergarten. No, this was uh, in the late 1990s. And uh, what actually instigated the change was Dr. Smith came to <coughs> indulge me in these memories. But Dr. Smith came to Vanderbilt and Mike Cook did prostatectomies a certain way and Dr. Smith did a prostatectomy a different way. And all the different sutures were pulled differently. All the different types of post-op care were quite different. And to their credit, both of them decided together that, uh, you know, we need to do something to decrease costs, decrease variation, and maybe we'll get some, some downstream benefits. So they actually reviewed the literature at that time, which was, was, was just starting to accumulate, uh, and came up with the idea regarding how are we going to prepare these patients uh, before surgery? What are we going to do interoperatively? What suture are we going to pull? What instruments are we going to use? Um, those types of things. And then postoperatively, what's what's our, our, our care decision tree going to look like? Uh, and so in the 1990s, when this first came out, we, we looked at our, our different types of treatments and to start off with, our, our open prostatectomy length of stay went from five to six days down to three days. Um, so, which was, was at that time was a, a big difference. And uh, what actually influenced people, I think, more than anything was the fact that there were substantial cost savings, uh, not only on the hospital side, but in the operating room side. So with that, people were asking what was our pathway, what was our, what was our recipe? Um, because the biggest complaint at that time was we were practicing cookbook medicine, we weren't individualizing care, we weren't um, uh, being adaptable and understanding that certain patients required different types of care. So we expanded it to other types of treatments. The, the nice thing about this though, and with the, what the huge evolution has been, which and it really, uh, I think requires uh, significant credit to Dr. Pruthi, Dr. Dineshman, Dr. Sutka, uh, and Dr. Nix in terms of the next steps. And the next steps were basically actually utilizing evidence to determine what are the best next steps in terms of preoperative preparation, interoperative uh, kind of maximization in terms of, of providing the best level of care, and then postoperatively what to do to take into account not only cost, but more importantly, outcomes, uh, improving the quality of care, decreasing complications, and those types of things. So our biggest complaint up front was, okay, you're, you're getting these patients out, but they're all getting readmitted, or you're costing more, or patients are unhappy. And so, you know, that evolved into, well, we started looking at patient happiness and, and reported quality of outcomes early, early, types of evaluations, nothing as sophisticated as, as what Sarah's doing now, what C has done. It's it, it really was, were you okay? Were you happy? And, the, and they were, and the, the readmission rates were in fact actually lower and our costs were in fact lower. So then we expanded it to other, other types of, uh, of procedures and a lot of criticism uh, regarding cookbook medicine and, and actually things actually 
um, kind of simmered down as, as some practices adapted and others actually fought it quite aggressively. I really owe a huge amount of debt, or we do, to when Raj was at Chapel Hill, really reinvigorating, probably uh, with the help of Dr. Nix as well, reinvigorating kind of what this could do. Um, people were like, people didn't actually, I, I think, have, uh, they had a hard time believing our results, but others started to replicate it and actually improve on what was done. And, um, and that's the next step. And, and so it's a little bit of, about the history and, and, you know, what, what we were able to do and, um, you know, and now the next iterations are, are, are astronomically above and beyond what, what we did when we just basically scratched the surface. Thanks, Sam. Yeah, you, you kind of had a front row seat and you were part of the, some of the earliest, I think, papers in the urologic literature uh, on clinical care pathways. That's right. That's exactly what they're called. Um, and I think you touched on some of the sort of benefits of this, right? Healthcare costs was probably the initial driver, and, and that's the language sometimes for our administrators to invest in these programs is what has, you know, we have to speak, but I think there's benefits on quality of care, as you touched on education. Uh, people have shown higher staff satisfaction, that they're not, uh, the staff themselves know what the plan is every day, prospectively, rather than the surgical team coming in that morning and, you know, coming up with a new plan uh, that varies patient to patient. Patient expectations, I think, is those types of things exactly, exactly. Uh, and the patient expectations too; they know what to expect every day. The families do, and there's no surprises. You walk in and say you're going home today. Um, and I think it is the, the ability, and I think some of the people on this panel, uh, Sarah and Sia, have been able to do this: is translate scientific evidence into clinical practice. I think uh, there was a time when we were, training was really just about apprenticeship model. We did it just because that's the way we were shown. Now it's taking the science of things and implementing them. And I think we're gonna talk about some of that today. Um, and with, with that, uh, I'm gonna transition over and maybe I can, I can ask uh, on the aspect of preoperative care and the role of counseling in the patient and the family's expectations. Uh, Jeff, do you wanna say a few comments on family yeah. expectations? Yeah, I mean, the other thing I would say that that Sam and the group at Vanderbilt did that was so key was being honest about perioperative complication rates, readmission rates. I mean, when that Vanderbilt study came out, I was a resident and it was like, someone finally told the truth that these patients don't all go home and none of them come back. And, you know, and, and, and again, you see this in Sia's work now where it's like, you know, one of the things that we'll talk about through this, through this, through this module is like enhanced recovery pathways. The problem cost-wise from them, if you put your administrative hat on is we keep adding stuff to the pile, right? So like if ketamine's a good, then ketamine bus plus a truncal block must be better. And if ketamine plus a truncal block is best, then the nurse has to call a patient every day post recovery. And I think that's one of the studies that CAU did where it was looking at, hey, does this really actually make a difference in recovery? And one of the things that we see is, yeah, we, um, again, I think when I, um, I just recently finished my MSHA and one of the things that you immediately notice when you look at the business side of this thing is this enhanced recovery stuff can get out of hand quickly in terms of we continue to add and add and add. I will say, um, so again, I, but, but again, back to the initial point is, you know, the group at Vanderbilt just sort of being honest with 
the literature of, hey, this is what happens. Patients bounce back and this is the level. This is, this is where we have the bar that allowed the rest of us to be like, okay, great. Like finally we can get to a place and I think what your residents won't remember is like, man, we used to be at a place where everybody get in, got a G tube, you know, and everybody after a cystectomy was in the hospital 10 to 12 days. And you might look at that as barbaric medicine, but people will look at what we do as barbaric medicine 20 years from now. And so I think um, the ability to, to establish a baseline and then to develop some science around this is a real baseline is what motivated me. Um, you know, and again, and I think uh, to, to uh, Dr. Prithi's point is when these first studies came out about enhanced recovery pathways, the other thing I would say is the residents here are going to be like, well, this is a no brainer. But what you have to remember is when this was initially started, the idea of putting a, a systems analyst or an engineer, a process engineer into the care of medicine would have blown doctors heads off, right? Like, the idea that you would have done that or that you would have cared for patients that way would be unthinkable and would be a reason to put your stake, you know, put your head on a stake. And so the, the concept now of, of, of the fact that we can reduce variance by these sort of pathways at that point was, was brand new and was not in favor, like not even close. As, as Dr. Chang mentions, like there weren't a bunch of people cheerleading or clapping this concept initially. Um, and to, to answer Dr. Preeti's question more, more accurately about preoperative counseling, I think what I learned early on as a trainee under, under Raj was that expectations are everything. Um, it does not matter what kind of protocol you have. It doesn't matter what their pain levels are. Those objective assessments are uh, under the guise of real world experiences. And those patients' experiences are based on emotion. They're based on conceptually where they're coming from and their socioeconomic status, their family status. And so if you are not establishing real uh, expectations up front, you've already lost well before any of these other interventions. And so we looked at a couple of years ago, the cost of some of these truncal blocks we're doing and and, and for minimally invasive surgery, are they always appropriate and the time for the anesthesia residents and the cost from the institution? And what I think what we're in the middle of now is looking at that versus just basic expectations. So if you tell your patient post-prostatectomy, you're gonna have zero out of 10 pain control and go home in 18 hours, you're gonna lose every time. If you tell them they're gonna have a four out of 10 pain control and again, this is all about enhanced recovery pathways. So if you have a pathway, you can set up the expectations appropriately. So again, uh, one of the other parts of pre-op expectations is like, hey, we send patients home with, with uh, for prostatectomy as an example, five to six oxycodone pills, and that's the range, all right? So residents don't get to dictate, attendings don't get to dictate. Like Dr. Chang mentioned, the variance in what we do has to have some limits in order for us to get better. And so everybody gets five to six pills. And so you know that ahead of time. And But if I tell you ahead of time, you need to expect zero pain after a prostatectomy and you're getting five to six pills, you can imagine 25% of patients are gonna call back unhappy. And so those expectations you set up front are is everything. And so part of, part of that, I think the reason enhanced recovery pathways help you with that is 
we have a booklet that tells you, uh, you know, Raj alluded to it, but what to expect on post-up day one, what to expect on post-up day two, on post-up day four, you're going to go home. And, and a quick story as, as an illusion before I shut up is I remember as a third year resident, when I was deciding to go into oncology, <clears throat> I remember I thought, holy moly, like Dr. Prithi walking into a room with a patient, it was a cystectomy patient and he would tell them, listen, I run your care, but you're not going to see me every day post-op. You're not going to see me post-op day zero. You're not going to see me post-op day one. And I remember being like, dude, that's ballsy. These people are going to be unhappy. They're going to be like really mad. But I can tell you what had hap what happened in retrospect in the end is patients knew going into to the, they knew what to expect. They knew, look, I'm going to see you once or twice post-procedurally, but at the same time, you're controlling the strings. And that one little tweak makes a huge difference. And again, I, I know all of you as residents out there know that sometimes if the attending gets busy and they don't come by and the patient was expecting that, it doesn't matter what their outcome was, they're already unhappy. So again, it's, it's the little stuff about setting expectations up front that make a huge difference. Thanks, Jeff. I, I wanna ask, and maybe Sam, you could help answer this. You, you mentioned, Jeff, about the expectations one way. I always thought too, if you tell a patient you're gonna stay two weeks, they're gonna stay two weeks. You know, it's kind of the opposite too. What do you think, Sam? As yeah, far as I, I agree totally. Um, once you give them, and, and this is something we, we, we had to be very careful with that the messaging was unified. And so I think the point that, that Raj brought up early on regarding, um, you know, everybody was involved in, in the initial clinical appearance. Actually, there were two nurses on our original articles. We're looking at um, kind of integration of these were actually, one was a clinic nurse and one was one of our clinical nurse specialists that really helped set up expectations early on. Because when one person says, oh, you go home in a week or so, that's all they need to hear. And that's what they'll remember is, oh, well, somebody said that I'd, I'd stay here till, you know, seven or eight days or 10 days. So the, the messaging the expectations are, I think are, are really important. Um, so, and, and I think, you know, Sarah and Sia have, have, have talked about kind of not only that up front before surgery, but after surgery as well. Like, you know, what to expect? How, how is that actually taken into account? So I think that's all very important. Great. Yeah, um, I would say something yeah. to sort of add on to that. Like, I think it's really important. That's part of establishing a code of trust with your patients is that you're going to tell them the truth. You're going to sort of lay it out and then, and and they can sort of trust what you say. So I think that having that, those kind of early discussions, which actually, to Sam's point, saying, these are the complications we see. This is what I'm going to be looking for every day and making sure I'm doing everything I can to avoid it. But giving them realistic expectations, because we know that patients after this operation have complications. It's, it, it, the vast majority of patients will have something that will happen that will not be the way that we wished it was. Whether it's something small or something large, that's, you know, there's there's varying reports, you know, 30% have a major complication. But I think setting those those key expectations are critical. I also think it helps to, you know, you say, most of my patients go home on day five. Some go home on day four, some go home on day six, but the average is around five. And here's what's gonna happen day one, two, three, four, five. And here are the, here are the benchmarks you're gonna to need to pass to go home. You sort of laid out this framework that seems very clear. 
and it takes a lot of the guesswork out. I think the the other um, sort of part of it though is I will tell patients, you know, I'm going to use this, I'm going to use my Expiril with the numbing medicine and the vast majority of my patients don't really require any narcotics. The second you sort of normalize the fact that they're not going to be getting narcotics and saying that this is how, this is the, the, the average, it it's again setting expectations and it's amazing how many patients will get through and not take a single narcotic because because i'll say i'm saying this is my pain pathway here's all the other things that we're going to and we're going to talk about i know sort of all the different ways that we handle pain um i think it's just important to have those conversations as part of both setting up your relationship with the patient managing expectations but also i, I think that helps in terms of letting the enhanced recovery pathway really play itself out because you're you're sort of guiding patients down that line. Just like you say, if you say you're going to stay seven days, patients will stay seven days. Yeah, that's a good point about starting your relationship with them with those expectations. Sia, how do you counsel uh, your patients? Do you do you have literature or what kind of, maybe you could tell us a little bit about how you speak to them? Yeah, um, I, I agree with, with everyone, what everyone said here is about expectations. <clears throat> I think it starts at a consultation. Uh, you know, people do a reading and they'll say, oh, I heard this 10-day uh, hospital stay. We say, no, well, we have an enhanced recovery program here. Um, and we'll tell them up front that the average hospital stay at our hospital is four days. And they say, oh, wow, really? Uh, is not too soon. And I say, no, we will make sure that you're meeting your um, goals and expectations before you're discharged. Um, that's an important factor. We're not kicking patients out sooner, uh, but rather uh, they are meeting their milestones sooner, right? So we haven't we haven't moved that needle of uh, being ready, having bowel movements, tolerating a regular diet, pain under control, and normal labs before they're discharged. So explaining that to them up front, I think, is important. And also the family, I think uh, uh, some alluded to. It's a it's a team, right? You just tell the patient, but also family expectations at home are very important if they think uh, their spouse or father or mother is, is going to the hospital for a week to 10 days, they're gonna prepare for that mentally. Um, and also another thing to think about is, is weekend discharges. You do a cystectomy on a Tuesday and that if the patient doesn't go home by Friday or Saturday, they're staying through the weekend. So uh, managing those kinds of expectations uh, on the hospital side that, that are uh, uh, important uh, to, to think about. Um, as far as literature is concerned, we don't have specific literature, but we do have um, little posters and stuff that are more general for all ERAS patients that, that sort of put in figures uh, about their diet, about their pain, about their walking, very general stuff um, uh, that, that helps them sort of visualize what they need to do on post-up day one and two. So basically, it's, it's, uh, we have an ERAS uh, uh, diet uh, that started out as a cystectomy diet, but we were using cystectomy diet for <laughs> Uh, it's actually it's an actual menu that we came up with uh, with nutrition, uh, and then we realized we're using the cystectomy diet for nephrectomies, for RPLTs, for all these. So we made it uh, a gen generic uh, uh, ERAS um, menu diet, basically, which is a regular diet minus the difficult to digest things. So uh, that's it. Yeah. 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 I, I wanted to, if I could, like, just sort of to, to bounce off what Sia said and say, yeah, I think. Um, Family is, is like the family expectations are incredibly important. And I saw Sam sort of nodding his head too. Like the whole concept of the surgical home and what anesthesia has been sort of driving for the last sort of 10 or 15 years is, you know, social support matters. Like, you know, the resources available to the patient matters. Like all that stuff matters. Like 
I had an 81 year old patient that uh, we did a couple of days ago and he was estranged from his daughter and had no one else and lives alone and, and, and like, you know, 81 year old Henri doesn't like his neighbors. And so the reality, it doesn't matter how good your perioperative pathway is. If you send that guy home, he's going to bounce back. Like, so how are you going to manage that patient differently based on your perioperative care pathway? Like your inpatient stuff is less relevant for that guy than what's going to happen in three to seven days. To Sarah's point, like these complication rates aren't just in the first four to five days. Um, and so I think that's huge. And so he stayed, even in COVID, he stayed at actually the children's home, like resource, you know, the Ronald McDonald house, we had him, we, we were able to get him there for four or five days as a bridge because otherwise we knew the cost of care was gonna be higher if he bounced back. The other thing Sia brought up is your hospital has to be integrated into this protocol. Like, so we realized very quickly that if we weren't discharging patients by Friday at four o'clock, they were staying till Monday. And the main reason for that for cystectomies was we did not have uh, stoma nurses that were staffed for the weekends. Like the institution as a whole colorectal. So actually we partnered with colorectal to get the hospital to hire two additional stoma nurses to work on the weekends. And so, and again, like knowing your, knowing your pressure points, right? So this wasn't anything has had nothing to do with perioperative pain to Sarah's point. This was just the patients were uncomfortable with the stoma teaching and they wanted to wait for the stoma nurses to come back on Monday. And this was limiting discharges for a significant percentage of our patients. So we partnered with colorectal to, to sort of have the hospital hire new, new uh, nurses. So to see his point, like institutionally, the support has to be there. You have to know your pressure points. Weekend discharges are very relevant. Yeah. Um, yeah, and I think your point's right about uh, just e even for that man you talked about is Pre, you know, preoperatively addressing his social needs too, right? Rather than try to catch up on the back end uh, when they're in hospital waiting for social work to kind of take care of things. Um, Sam, can I ask you about, uh, to talk a little bit about what else from the preoperative standpoint you guys might do from a prehab standpoint or other lifestyle changes for the patient? Yeah, I'm happy to, I think uh, actually, a lot of the work, uh, you know, on this, um, Sarah should say a few words for sure, for sure and, and Raj, your team at UCS, for sure. You know, we, we've tried to integrate and, and incorporate a lot of things that others have, have done. I think the work on, on activity and, and physical um, kind of well-being in terms of be it a step monitor, be it uh, certain types of, of evaluation of, of, of physical activity, I think is important smoking cessation. Um, we have the, have had the pleasure of actually having um, Woody Smeltzer, who is, was a resident at Kansas is a first year oncology fellow. And they've done a lot of the work there. Jeff uh, Holzberlein has an R1 looking at different types of, of, of um, immunonutrition, actually modulation in terms of attempting to um, and they've shown in pilot studies, and, and they've got a, a larger study now, they've shown in pilot studies the impact of immunonutrition has just even a short term on complication rates um, and length of stay as well. But, you know, things that we're trying to incorporate now include 
um, our PM&R folks are actually our, our, we have a psych oncology group as well. Um, importantly, just the things that, that, that Sarah has raised in terms of expectations, but including social work, including uh, the OSME folks looking at actually um, our general surgeons have a palliative health study that actually incorporate evaluation of pain symptomatology, intake, overall uh, support status, and take that preoperatively, intraoperatively, and postoperatively. So we're, we're happy to actually um, uh, kind of piggyback on, on what they've done. So we've got kind of uh, an outline that, that Woody has really helped us put together. Um, and I, I'm, I'm curious to see, Sarah, what's the latest and greatest that you guys are doing at UW? So this is um, obviously an area that I'm pretty excited about uh, starting. I think that I start the conversation about prehab when I meet the patients and we start planning for neoadjuvant chemotherapy. I say, this is the moment in your life when you can change your outcome in three to four months with a few small things. And I'm, I basically, I try to keep it as simple as possible, but this is, this is a moment to kind of reassign the locus of control a little bit. Um, it's a very teachable moment. This is the moment to do smoking cessation. This is the moment to start talking about nutrition. So I give them the ESPN guidelines on nutrition. Back that, this is four months before we're gonna be going to cystectomy. And I start talking about, I want them, you know, upping their protein intake one gram of protein per kilogram of body mass per day. I mean, some of the guidelines say up to two grams, but that's almost impossible for most of these patients to do. Start focusing on, you know, a Mediterranean-based, plant-based diet, just whole foods, very simple, nothing nothing fancy beyond the protein. I say, I really, you know, I want you taking a boost shake a day. If you're a diabetic, I want you taking a glucerna shake a day. I want you really focusing on protein supplementation, hydration, and, and physical activity. I haven't we're not running any kind of boot camps here yet. I think that that we're working, I'm working with some of our PM&R folks as well on sort of ideas. But the whole idea here is, I think that the simplest pathways are the pathways that have the, that are the easiest to do. They have to be scalable. They have to be feasible. They have to be lo-fi. Yeah. The doability, I think, is essential. Yeah. You totally share. These guys are not going to be going to a gym. They're not doing HIIT workouts. But if you can get them walking around the block, then that's then 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 you're making a big you know especially if you're getting them to walk around the block while they're getting their cisplatin then we're really making potentially some some uh, some strides. I talk to patients a lot about the fact that they can control how much muscle mass they will lose while they're getting chemotherapy, um, and just basically work on that. We also do the um, uh, immune nutrition shakes, the Nestle surgery shakes for five days before surgery. We're running um, SWOG 1600 when it opens back up here for sure. Um, and then I think the other part is again risk stratification and that's kind of where most of my research is focused right now which is on doing a very comprehensive assessment not only of physical function, nutritional status, getting nutrition in and doing a formal assessment for somebody who does look like they're cachectic or pre-cachectic. Um, but talking to, you know, involving the geriatricians, involving, looking at cognitive function, looking at um, social support networks, as you guys talk about, and basically trying to sort of pre, like, troubleshoot, like, what's going to be, what's going to go wrong to see if we can kind of pad the decks in any of those areas. So that's, that's what we're working on. And I'm right now I'm working on, I'm enrolling patients into a study where we're, we're doing a fairly aggressive comprehensive geriatric assessment in clinic in real time. And then using that in the decision-making phase, pre-chemo. 
And I know Sarah, I know this, some of this stuff was, was, I think it was BCAN like three or four years ago, Artie Hurria came, yeah. talked about like the Center for Geriatric Medicine and, yeah. you know, I still use some of those assessment tools. Do you use those tools or other tools or? I have a uh, CGA that I've kind of just built out that's very basic, comes right from the geriatric literature. There was a, um, in focus in 2000 and like on the year 2014, there was a really nice review by Torres um, that just basically was like, here's what a CGA is. We And we just um, wrote a little review on this in Urologic Oncology, just borrowing directly from the work that's already been done and, and is like standard of care in geriatrics, which is exactly the kind of, we don't need to reinvent the wheel here. We can, we can easily in, integrate these assessments into our clinic. And some of them are actually you can use the sort of abbreviated assessments. It doesn't actually take that much more time. It's about 20, we've got it down to about 22 minutes. You know, uh, that kind of stuff. Gray here speak a little bit, because I think that work is incredibly important. Um, but along the lines to combining that, because we do a poor job, I think, of assessment. So everything that you accumulate and can teach us will be really important. But to combine that with um, with expectations, so, one of the things the residents will, will will hear me talk about specifically is telling the family up front there is a high likelihood that the patient postoperatively may know may not know exactly who you are, where they are, what's gonna happen. They may forget days and dates. I, I tell folks up front that, that because that if you don't up front, I think the family is is most concerned about that. Um, whereas the vast majority of times, as, as you all know, with, with, with acute delirium or exacerbation, up front, the, 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 the resolution will take some time, but the vast majority resolve. If, if you don't tell them up front that this may happen, and the residents then say, well, is that what happened to you this morning, Dr. Chang? And, you know, is that what's going on? Well, yeah, I mean, I'll, I'll say there's no question there is a key risk factor and underlying issues, but as patients age, tell only family up front that, this, that th these things may happen and will likely improve, I think definitely puts family at ease. When, when, when they start seeing things or certain patients start having delirium that is worsened acutely, and you've already told them up front that this is gonna happen, everybody I think is on the same page and is much more comfortable. The, uh, just a quick plug for the ACS NISQIP, there's the new tool with the geriatric risk factor build out that's really nice for that because it, it brings delirium as a complication of surgery to the front and projects the, the added risk as well as the loss of function and things like that. And I think I, I will routinely use that when I'm talking yeah, about it. Where, where can we? You have to, I'm sorry, Sia, you, you, you win. You go ahead. Oh, I was just going to ask, where, where do we find this? That, that sounds great. The ACS. Yeah. Uh, yeah. So when you do the the ACS NISQIP risk um, assessment tool, if your patient is over sixty five, you can just click. There's a button to you to that asks if you would like the geriatric risk stratification, and it gives you um, risk of delirium, risk of <clears throat> decrease in function, requirement of new mobility aid, discharge to place other than home, and false. I think those are the four outcomes. Yeah, it's nice. Yeah, to Sarah's point, though, I think we have to we have to remind people that there is there's evidence that the NISQIP underestimates complications for cystectomy, and I think 
I think we all, those of us, and again, I, our advanced practitioners, or when we do it, we do an ISQIP assessment for each of our cystectomy candidates, put it in the chart. And I think you'd be surprised often, and maybe Sarah would agree or disagree, but I think the complication rates that they estimate are often way lower than we would expect. Mm -hmm. um, so I do think the, the disability part of that has, has really helped because you know, maybe they don't go to a, uh, to an inpatient rehab facility, but they will need a, a mobility aid or, and I think, you know, one of the things we struggle with, and I don't know, maybe if you guys don't in Washington or in California, Sam in Tennessee, but um, in terms of identifying patients who, were, who should benefit from rehab, again, we're one of the places where I get our PM and our people really excited. Like, we have, we have like real time to help these patients, right? Like neoadjuvant chemotherapy is not three days. It's a significant period of time. And even when I was at UNC, Raj used to talk about this all the time, but getting insurance providers to pay for prehab, getting, getting anyone to sort of pay, do you put it in her cardiac? Do you put it in her pulmonary? And it gets denied. And so for my, my issue in Alabama is we're dealing with patients without resources and getting them identifying prehab candidates isn't as hard as getting something to do about it, right? And, and I think that, I don't know, how do you deal with that there, Sarah or, or Raj or Sia, Sam? I'd, I'd love to hear y'all's thoughts. Sarah? Um, sure, so I think, you know, again, I, I think that getting it paid for is one, is one thing. I, I, a lot of my patients are coming from pretty far, so they can't, they're not going to be able, you know, they're coming either across the pass, they're coming from Alaska. Um, I need to be able to have them have, be doing things in preparation for surgery that they can do at home from, you know, three hours to a, a flight away from, from Seattle. Um, so, I think that I try to usually get them into those visits where we're building that bridge, I think, right now. That's something that is um, trying to, to I, I would love to have a PM&R person in clinic. That's not going to happen. But I think if you build, build sort of a, a, an assessment tool that gives you objective data that this patient would strongly benefit from, then you get the stakeholders in the room and say, okay, look, this patient has this chance of falling because we're now collecting this data that's very objective and very quantitative. If we can start actually using that to really identify people and say, you know, with high fidelity, this patient is going to, is going to do better if we can improve their physical function pre-op. And hopefully maybe then we can actually utilize those resources more efficiently and, and have them be paid for. Which is why I think a lot. I I run a pretty low-fi ERAS program. I, I I was at county county of Chicago for three years where I didn't have anything, and so I, I created this very low-intensity program from start to finish. That I've kind of we have a very a really nicely fine-tuned one here at Washington. But I've brought a lot of those aspects because I think there's a lot you can do that doesn't cost a lot, that just takes a lot more time in terms of counseling. Uh. Yeah, Sarah, I like your recommendation broadly of kind of what you term lo-fi. Just keep it simple that they could do at home because I think all of us have patients who come from distances. Um, yeah. Can I ask you a very specific question? You talked about smoking cessation. So there is some data that suggests, I mean, that's all obviously a very good thing for patients to do. They all have tobacco abuse. That is it worse to have them stop right before surgery? I mean, there's some data that suggests some of that nicotine withdrawal and, and their response may be worse versus continue on. How do you, what are your thoughts on that? 
right? So I think that data says that if, you, if they smoke, if they quit smoking within, I think, the two weeks before surgery, you have a higher risk of pulmonary complications and acute nicotine withdrawal. Is that that's my sort of understanding of the papers that have shown that. Yeah. Um, so I try, I try again. I take it back to pre chemo. Mm -hmm. um, and in that four, four month period, and I prescribe nicotine replacement therapy, like it's going out of style, um, Chantix, you name it, we do it. Um, and I harp on people and I tell them that like, I'm going to partner with you, which means I have, I need to, you know, I'm, I'm saying all of this, I call it tough love. And I'm just like, this is what I need from you. I need you to quit. You will have more complications if you don't quit. It's the same as getting their diabetes under control. Like you've got four months to drop your A1C. Let's do this together. So I, I get pretty intense with them about it and then try to involve the family. Um, I haven't, if they're going to quit smoking, I'm happy for them to quit smoking anytime. I don't know if you guys have feel differently about that. I wouldn't say if it's two weeks before, keep on smoking a pack a day. Um, like it's two weeks before, let's stop now. I agree. I, I, I take the plastic surgeon's stance on if you don't quit smoking, you're not having surgery, <laughs> you know, because their flaps fail and, you know, there's blood supply issues and things like that. I'm sure it uh, applies to some of what we do, although we don't have good evidence for it. But yeah, I'm happy for them to quit even a day before. I think the anesthesiologists also uh, uh, appreciate that. Um, Sarah, one question, you, you've mentioned a lot about this three, four months um, uh, time period that you have. And I sort of view that as, yeah, I tell them all this stuff and I try to implement things. And then they're the un under the care of another physician for the three, four months. And, uh, you, you know, what's being implemented there, sometimes insurance issues don't allow for continuity of care of neoadjuvant chemotherapy at my institution. So it, it, it's more difficult, it's challenging to implement some of the things that we want to implement and we send them to our nutritionist. They say, no, it's not approved. They got to go see someone else. And we send them to, we don't have PMNR, but we have a great PT department, physical therapy. And we do sort of uh, these trainings ahead of time. And I say, I want you to lose 10% body weight. Um, and you work with a PT, but it's, it's difficult to implement when it's not in, inside your own institutions. I totally agree. I, and again, I say that a lot of the stuff I'm doing is, um, we, we, when we have patients who are in Seattle who can be here during that time and be seeing these other consults, then, then, you know, that's a little bit easier, but a lot of these are conversations and I check in with them at two months and say, how's it going? Where are things at? Yeah. And, and I think Sarah's point, Sia's point, like this is where the CMS sort of the oncology care model, the OCM model, like can be helpful. I mean, some of this Sia to your point is attribution, right? So if I'm the one, if the, you know, we've dealt with this as sort of one of the OCM sort of early sites. And, you know, if, if a patient is diagnosed with a cancer at your institution and they get the majority of their care at your institution, but then they go off and get their medical oncology and their chemo at another institution, you still have the attribution bias of the total outcome of that care. And again, I think not to get into politics, but I think that's where a capitated model helps all of us in terms of better care is cheaper care. Um, you know, Vanderbilt was in an ACMO very early. And so Sam may agree or disagree with that. I don't know where he stands with this, but um, you know, the realities are um, if we can attribute that care to Sarah or see her like, or to a specialist who understands the complexity of that outcome, maybe we do drop down costs. Um, and maybe, and again, I don't think there's anyone in this, in this, panel that doesn't think prehab is going to save us money 
and help identify patients who, to see his point, don't need cystectomy because they're going to do poorly because the social support's not there or because they're not willing to make the behavioral changes or because they have such a bad outcome from the chemotherapy and they lost 20% of their body weight. And to Sarah's point, they're connected and their grip strength is terrible. You watch them walk down the hall with a walker, you already know they're going to do terrible. So again, objectifying this data like Sarah mentioned, but also can we get someone to sort of in a capitated model to help us to sort of provide this care up front? Um, I'd like to get into now, uh, take the next step in our, our discussion. As you can see, there's a lot that happens before we get to the operating room. But when we get to the operating room, I just want to touch on a couple of uh, factors, if we could. Sia, do you want to talk a little bit about fluid management? I think this has, in a very good way, positively evolved with our anesthesia colleagues over the last five or 10 years. Um, how, what are your kind of broad recommendations? Uh, you know, kind of general fluid management, restrictive fluids? Yeah, Roz, thanks. Um, I, I think uh, intra-op is, is one of those things that we have uh, least control of. Um, and it depends on how integrated you are with your anesthesia um, department and what, what they're doing. Um, I think it's always best to be part of a protocol or be part of a maybe even a, a prospective clinical trial where they have to do something. We, um, in general, like restrictive fluids. I can tell you that the culture here was quite the opposite until recently where they love fluids and then the uh, Lasix to follow. They love seeing that urine flow. And we do too. We've gotten used to it. We're all urologists at the end of the day, right? We like to see, uh, especially when you do that neobladder, nothing's coming out. <laughs> Patients, uh, there's a balance there. So restrictive, yes. Uh, do we have a specific protocol where we say, you know, how many uh, cc's uh, per kg? Uh, the answer is no. So in the beginning of the case, um, we do sort of nod to the CRNA, the anesthesia resident, the attending, whoever's in the room that we're on board with ERAS, right? So fairly fairly restrictive protocol. Let's communicate. Let's, when we unclip the ureters, let's see what's coming out and so on and so forth. Um, so I would say just very broadly, um, also pain, intraoperative pain management, uh, what they're doing. It's it's uh, whether they're giving Tylenol, pre-op, uh, Celebrex or whatever they're doing affects what we do post-op, right? So. I always talk about this communication between, uh, you know, the curtain is being a critical factor for the patients. Um, so, yeah, that's, that's where we stand. Yeah, I, I think you bring up a good point. I think it's important to have the anesthesiologist part of your ERAS pathway. In fact, we do when we, we actually measure, like, outcomes and adherence to the ERAS protocol, which includes here uh, restrictive fluids. I think it's three milliliters per kilogram per hour, and then they add epi in a little bit to it. Um, I think it makes a real big difference, uh, especially now that we're not prepping the patients that we used to. Uh, so, I mean, that was an, a, a, a great excuse for them to kind of open the floodgates uh, at the beginning of the case, and now these patients come in relatively well hydrated. And I think they do much, much better from a variety of factors, ileus certainly, and then kind of cardiopulmonary management as well. Um, and it's not even that, it's just the NPO after midnight, right? The concept is antiquated. It doesn't meet anesthesia guidelines from the American Association of Anesthesia. So even those concepts, you know, getting your anesthesia provider on an individual level to agree with the fact that, to your point, Raj, is they can have clears up to three hours. Like, not only 
can they, but they should absolutely be having fluid up to three hours. And that's not, you know, getting, you know, some of this we're talking about is, is change management. It's not necessarily in, uh, you know, specific to enhance recovery pathways, but it's just, if you're going to do change, change management and you you can't do this without anesthesia, you can't do this without nursing, you can't do this without all of the different, you can't do this without ostomy, you, you know, medicine is no longer an individual sport. Surgeons are not, are not individual operators. This is a team sport. And so, uh, we do, to see his point, we do have enhanced recovery pathways where the because we are a CRNA-driven institution in terms of anesthesia care. So again, some of this that Raj alluded to earlier is also understanding your pressure points. So at our institution, the anesthesiologists determined that a pathway that was pretty specific was going to be required to do this well because the majority of the cases are performed by CRNAs. And so... You know, CRNAs are really good at providing anesthesia care, but they also kind of do their own thing unless you give them specific guidelines. And so we were not able to see this point. We, would, we wanted to do the, hey, guys, we're going to do restrictive fluid guidance. And that just didn't work. After about a year, we were still flooding patients and we were still having struggles. And so because we are a CRNA-driven institution, we, we had to do more specifics. Yeah, and, and, and we, we, like I mentioned, we have it there, but I, at the beginning of the case, just sort of say it out loud again for everybody to hear what the kind of goals are. Um, I also check during surgery, like in the middle of cases. I'll say, okay, where are we at? How are we doing with fluids? I clamp the ureters. You've got this much time until I expect to unclamp. You're not going to have any urine output. Keep me updated on the blood pressure, and then I'll intermittently check and see how much fluid's been given. Because, yeah. you, you know, there's change of teams, and people come in, and then all of a sudden they just start flowing. Oh, I, I love asking them to go check the urine output when the ureters are clipped, and they go, there's, <laughs> there's been no urine, especially when, like, did, did you guys communicate? Um, one thing I did want to ask, sorry if there's time, is uh, blood management, because it's sort of fluid-based as well. Um, who in your various institutions uh, is responsible for the decision to transfuse or not intraoperatively? Sam, any, any thoughts? Uh, it's a joint decision. Mm -hmm. um, you know, I, I've never, um, we are, we're obviously much less liberal with transfusions than we used to be, much, much less. We were at a time early on, I mean, I've, went through when we were worried about the blood supply then everybody got blood i mean we're 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 very very judicious and it's a combination of it's usually a consensus uh look we 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 want to limit as much as we can but there's no set number that we'll transfuse at um but when there are parameters when they're really dialing up any kind of of of, of pressure support uh and and we then we look at parameters like lactic acid base deficit, different things that are going on. Then then we usually decide together, and we're it's not just everybody gets two. It's we start off with one, and we see what happens. I, I I'm curious to see what happens elsewhere. Well, I think this is another place where Vanderbilt advanced the science, right? I mean, um, you know, looking at transfusions and the fact that there are other factors to consider in terms of overall outcomes for cancer related care. Uh, and, you know, some of the studies that came out of Vanderbilt and 
I think, you know, we have to, to see this question at UAB, like it is a joint decision before surgery in terms of who has blood available. Um, I think historically that was at the surgeon's discretion and I would be the first one to say that's not appropriate. Should be based on objective data of procedures and overall variance in procedures. If a prostatectomy never needs blood over the last five years, then why would I get to be the one that says this very finite um, resource gets to be put in my case. And so I think there's a lot of that at our institution that happens before the surgery ever takes place. Having said that, in terms of transfusion, I agree with Sam, it's a joint decision in terms of, I mean, I would be upset if my patients need a transfusion as an MIS cystectomist, but um, having said that, I think it would be a joint decision between the two. I just want to quickly say, like Sia mentioned, pain control too, like I think Sarah's point is you're constantly checking in with your anesthesia provider about pain management too. Like if you have a, there's a variability in terms of why they're treating pain. So if, if the patient got ketamine and they got an intrathecal, um, are they running them at 1.0 Mac? If they are, then they're taking a 72 year old and they're running them too deep. So if they're, you know, and I think these are places where urologists historically have not gotten involved that we need to be involved. So if a patient got ketamine and they got intrathecal and they're still running, a, a CRNA is running at 1.0 max, that's too deep. And they're going to suffer from that in a post-operative fashion. So this is where we need to be involved. If they're treating intraoperatively hypertension, uh, if they're treating that as pain and they're giving them you know, pain medicines for just intraoperative hypertension, I think that can be a mistake too. So we have to be involved in those parts of the care or else you'll turn around. I mean, we'll have, you know, four hour cystectomies where they got 75 micrograms of fentanyl because of the perioperative pain protocol. And Sarah, I see Sarah nodding her head. Like if they got ketamine and they got an intrathecal, they don't need much fentanyl. Mm -hmm. uh, they don't, they don't need 500 micrograms. I mean, so if an, a CRNA is giving them that kind of, of, of narcotics, you're going to suffer in the post-operative pathway, no matter what you do in terms of intereg um, or other processes. Hey, Sam, can I ask you a little bit to talk about, speaking of pain management, to transition over to that, maybe as we kind of finish, finish up uh, the concept of blocks, what kind of blocks do you use or what kind of pain management do you use epidurals at your institution or not? Or yeah, there's there's big debate regarding epidurals and and definitely mixed results in the literature. We we uh, tend, uh, you know, uh, this is this would be very different, I think, from see 85 percent of cystectomies I do now are are robotic. Um, we're doing more intracorporeal diversions, not as many as as we probably should be doing, but we're starting. But we'll, we'll use uh, tap blocks um, and uh, no epidurals. Um, we had been using on-cue pumps. I think, Sia, you've been using on-cue pumps quite a bit. I yeah, think they're great. Yeah. Um, yeah, I mean, how's your experience been with them? Uh, it's it's great. We, we always wanted to do a randomized uh, double-blind study. We wrote it up. We didn't get funding for it, uh, but I, I really do think it works. We've had situations where we were blinded to it and you know, the thing runs out, it, it does work. Uh, I think it's just part of that multimodal, but tap blocks do too. I, I don't know which is better. I've, I've just been doing the subfascial on cue catheters. These are the ones that go under uh, in, it, in the plane between the posterior rectus sheath and the rectus muscle, and we use rapivacaine. Uh, so it is effective. 
And I'm sending home um, um, some patients with it, by the way. That's brand new uh, for yeah. uh, RPLNDs. I don't know if you guys um, may know, I do these uh, midline extraperitoneal RPLNDs. They go home literally the next day in post-chemo RPLNDs. And uh, now, uh, over the past uh, year or so, I've been sending them home with the oncocatheters, which orthopedics has been doing for a long time. We just haven't made that leap. So it's, it's great. I just tell them to remove it at home. Whenever it runs out, it's great. But GI surgery did that trial. I mean, to see his point, like it's not urology specific, but GI surgery did that trial with on pumps and there was a benefit. So, yeah. yeah. Hey, Sam, what kind of, uh, what do you use for the tap blocks then? I mean, there's obviously now like things like Expiral or Bupivacaine or. Yeah, we've, we've been using Bupivacaine. Uh, and, you know, it's the anesthesia folks are coming in with the ultrasound. And actually, honestly, while, we're putting a catheter in or we're doing, or we're shaving the paper, we're doing whatever we're preparing them. They're, they're putting them in and they're actually, while they're hyperoxygenating them, they'll be putting them in. They'll, we've got two teams doing it. There'll be a pain management team and that type of thing. I, I don't know. What have you guys been using, Rush? Well, we, um, here, what we'll do is, I don't know if this is classified as a formal tap lock, but uh, at the end of the case, kind of subfascial, I mean, above and below the fascia uh, and into the rectus. Uh, Expiral. Although I have seen, the question I've always wondered is, you know, there's data, Expiral is better than placebo, but is it better than Bupivacaine, which costs 100 times less? Um, and there was something at the Western section uh, that was presented that showed no difference between the two, as far as sort of the post-operative pain and And, and I'll add to that, Raj, like as a non-Expiral site, like Again, we started to get concerned about cost, right? So like we're doing intrathecals, we're doing tap locks. And again, the one thing that I always think about with tap locks is to Sam's point and to Raj, your point, like we know how to do tap locks, but if, if anesthesia providers do the tap locks, that's going to cost, that charge is a completely different cost. Now, if institutionally regional blocks are important for the institution, then that's different. But like, man, the charge costs for anesthesia to provide the taps is phenomenally high. Haven't even thought about that. I, I'm actually, that's really a, that's really an interesting point. Yeah. Okay. So I've, we started doing, to Roger's point, we started doing the tap blocks ourselves at the beginning of the case. Yep. Anesthesia's argument was, oh, at the end of the case, it's not okay. It doesn't help. It's like, all right, fine, we'll do it, but we'll do it at the beginning of the case. Um, and, and our biggest concern was charges, right? Because again, our, the, the argument against enhanced recovery is we just keep adding things, right? Uh, Sarah's point about low fi is I think huge for the ERP people because, you know, if we're going to have a nurse to see a study, like we're going to have a nurse call every patient uh, post-discharge, that costs money. That's real cost. And does that provide benefit? you know, TAPs versus regionals versus intrathecals. I, so we're a non-Esperol side because, again, I think we couldn't get the institution to pony up the dough for it. I have to say on the Esperol, I, I think the data for just straight high-dose pivacaine, which Dr. Skinner, Isla Skinner talks about, um, yeah. is actually pretty compelling. But we, I've been doing, I borrowed from our general surgeons, uh, Esperol that's mixed with just a little bit of 0.5% uh, plain marking and then dilate it up with some sterile injectable saline to a volume of 60. And it's amazing because one, it does a bunch of things. One, it, it truly does with the Tylenol plus minus some Toradol, they really don't need much narcotic. Two, um, I get to do it. It's not, there is no extra charge from an anesthesia consult. Three, 
because anesthesia, the pain service is not doing an epidural, they're not also giving my patients a PCA after surgery or putting them on huge doses of oxycodone, nothing against them, but that's their pathways, just these very high narcotic pathways. So if I'm doing the expiral and I tell the patient, you're not going to get any narcotic, then they haven't gotten the narcotic. and And I don't have another consult service kind of coming in that's very high cost really appreciate the work that they do in their appropriate setting but i think it allows us to kind of keep everything in-house a little bit uh, which is a little bit less costly and and you can be very streamlined um so in that in that uh kind of transition over yeah i I think those are all kind of important things to do in the operating room sarah you touched a little bit on sort of post-operative uh non-narcotic analgesia and i'll see people will add anything to it tylenol iv and then quickly convert over to PO because of the cost, I think, and availability of IV Tylenol. Yeah. Toradol, if renal function allows. What else do people use? Neurontin? Yeah, gabapentin. Um, gabapentin. Definitely, if I didn't do Expiral, lidocaine patches. Lidocaine ice, patches. Pack. Yeah. ice packs are awesome. Ice uh, packs, yeah. They're cheap, <laughs> and they yeah. work, and patients feel like they're doing something. Um, and it's, uh, can I ask people, like, when we touched on this earlier, about how many narcotic pills do you send somebody home with uh, after cystectomy? One of the things that we do is we look at the inpatient narcotic use to help inform how much to send them home with. If they're not using very much inpatient, they'll need almost none after. I think the average when I was in North Carolina was like around 12 that we would send them home higher if their narcotic use inpatient was higher. Anybody else? Any? Yeah, we look at we look at OMEs. So. We have in our uh, EMR, we have an oral morphine equivalent tool that will sort of, one of the things that we found, Raj, was like, um, again, what you should see, this is one of those things about like, like the analogy for me is billing, right? So if you're billing uh, CMS for inpatient consult colds and you bill a level three every day and then the next day the patient discharges home, that doesn't make any sense, right? So the same, we found the same sort of concept for OMEs in that you would see this beautiful graph decreasing of oral morphine equivalent usage for the patient. And then we would send them home with 55 or oxycodone. Um, and so again, it was where it was just, you know, it's just like, well, the residents weren't doing anything wrong. They were just doing what minimized their phone calls, right? Or the, what they thought was like the right thing to do for patients or what they were told by their upper level to do. And so, yes, there is a variation, a bell curve in OMEs, but I think that has helped us to be much smarter about what we send patients home with. So if that bell curve is decreasing, and if it isn't decreasing, then there's some reason, you know, outside of the normal pathway. Yeah. Um, And then quickly, as we kind of finishing up, and we're a little bit over time, but I think we're coming uh, to the end. Uh, VTE prophylaxis, this is a standard now. Everybody here do four weeks at home? Mm-hmm. Four weeks? Yeah. Yeah, we do four uh, weeks of Lovenox. Lovenox, yeah. Yeah, Lovenox. And then one of the things we talked a little bit about, maybe see you can touch a little bit on this, is this idea of post-operative monitoring. One of the things that we're interested in here and have done is use of, yeah, you can do RN nurse checks, but use of health information technology, you know, mHealth to try to address some of these preventable complications and readmissions, you know, tracking the patient outcomes in real time using something we call uh, an app called Conversa, which is the thing actually we use when we go into the hospital every day 
and have to answer five questions about COVID exposure in a similar fashion that they they answer. And then if it's certain things, it triggers us to kind of get in touch with them, like they're not drinking and so forth for infections or readmissions, which obviously have a penalty. What, what are your thoughts on that? I know you, you've done some work on that. Nursing. Yeah, uh, great uh, points. I mean, um, I, I can tell you what doesn't work. <laughs> Those are nurse phone calls. Uh, because phone calls are uh, haphazard, and I said Je Jeff brought this up. Um, we were doing that in the beginning, thinking we can uh, identify these issues ahead of time. And what was happening was they weren't picking up the phone, and the nurse wasn't always there, or the patient's doing great on post update 12, and on post update 13, they have a fever, they're coming in. So it, we couldn't really identify anything um, uh, after we did it for a while. Extremely labor intensive. We had large sheets and we we're looking at Excel files. And I'm like, oh, what happened to Mr. Smith? And, you know, uh, mm -hmm. try to uh, uh, track these patients down. But I'm very interested in these devices because I think some of the early sepsis signs or acidosis signs can be picked up by these devices, whereas tracking your heart rate. Uh, we did a pilot study here where we were uh, looking at um, uh, these devices within the hospital to see whether we can uh, uh, correlate it with complications and correlate it with actual discharge. And it did. Um, sleep patterns and, and walking, the number of steps walked, uh, all this information came to us via uh, the Fitbit, uh, which is a very simple, uh, you know, tool. Uh, but I think in the future, we need more and more of these. <laughs> Problem was with this, we had a small grant for this. Uh, some of them weren't returned to us and people lost them and so on and so forth. <laughs> but I can imagine the more expensive the, the equipment is, the, the, the tougher it will be. But, but yeah, I think we should, we should probably start a trial uh, looking at these things, you know, actually randomize patients and see whether these things can, can work. I have a feeling they do. Uh, one of the things I do, and I'm sure you do something similar, with, is try to see the patients earlier. So we uh, see the patients, they go home, average day four, and we see them on day 10, make a you know complete assessment and then see them again on day 21. We do, we do identify things going on at day 10, that slight acidosis, make arrangements with the sodium bicarb, fluid management, and all this stuff. And as uh, many of you know, we also send patients home with IV hydration. Uh, which was even before our, our pre, um, I'm sorry, our, our ERAS program, they get one liter of IV fluids every other day at home. And that was our way of trying to decrease the dehydration uh, readmissions. And I think it's really worked. We just don't, we still have it uh, because they have nausea, vomiting, but, but it certainly decreased the number of admissions secondary to dehydration. We just do it for a week uh, and then assess uh, at that 10 day mark whether they need more, but it, it has helped. Yeah, that's something new I've learned here at UCSF that we hadn't done before. I don't know if anybody else has done it before, the home hydration. But um, I think I think one of the things I worry about, Tia, to your point, is if you look at the, 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 the metrics of care and the cost of care, home health is incredibly expensive. And so to your point, though, like a little bit of fluids doesn't require the home health to charge you $10,000, but that's sort of how they function. And so... Um, in, in the Southeast, especially like just to get a patient, a liter of fluid every other day. And we, we started this for a while because of the studies that you guys have done and, and the things you've mentioned before, and it costs a fortune, um, to Blue Cross and Blue Cross got back to us unhappily. Um, so I think that's one of those things where, yeah, we didn't really need the home health company to do a whole lot else, but to come out every other day and to give them a little bit of fluid, but 
they still charged an enormous amount of money. So I think that's something we've got to do better, you know, globally. Mm -hmm. um, we'll finish up, we're a little past time and I'll ask uh, the panelists to make a few comments. I mean, one comment I'll just make, you know, and I think we sort of learned this today, you know, as I've sort of like thought about, you know, pathways and ERAS, you know, we always talk a lot about the different medications and sort of the cocktail like that, that we put together in ERAS, but is it really, is it the cocktail or is it sort of the culture and consistency that goes along with it? And I would argue that ERAS is most important, not by the, the cocktail, but that culture of consistency and performance measurement. Uh, I think there's some important things, tenets, uh, which we heard about today, counseling, early diet advancement, non-narcotic analgesics. But I think that the issue is you are going to have some variations in the, in the components. And, and you do see different institutions with epidurals or not uh, apply things and have similar outcomes despite having different approaches. And, and to me, what I've observed now, you know, a couple institutions, it's consistency within your group, not really consistency that UCSF and Washington and UC, USC, UAB, Vanderbilt are all doing the same thing. But as a group that we're consistent internally and in eliminating inconsistencies and variations is maybe the most important, just kind of doing it uh, rather than the cocktail. Anybody's concluding comments by the panel? Now, I, I have to agree. I, I think every place has its own culture and you got to see what works within your dynamic um, uh, of, of your team uh, that you, you have around you. Absolutely. One thing I will say, though, is, you know, I tried a lot of things before um, we came out with our final ERAS protocol, and I felt like I couldn't quite break that barrier uh, because people were, you know, you feed them early, they get nausea, vomiting, they throw up, you go back until we started using uh, uh, the uh, Enteric. And that was really the game changer, uh, at least for me, because suddenly the ileus rates, you know, and this is backed up by evidence, obviously, um, it went significantly lower. And when you talk to people where Enterog is not available, uh, they can't quite break, break that barrier of six days, five days to earlier. I mean, we feed our patients on day one, they get a regular diet post-up day one. Post-up day zero, they're getting clear liquids. Um, and if, even if they have a little bit of nausea, vomiting on day one, we still kind of go on unless they're getting distended and, and you know, they have a science of ileus. So apart from that, I totally agree. I mean, there are very few things that are scientific, which is no NGs, no bowel prep, no, and, and some kind of mu receptor antagonist. And, and fortunately more are coming on the market now. So it'll, it'll be competitive, cheaper, and more people can use it. Yeah, and, I would echo what Sia said is, Interreg is key. It was really, uh, our institution is really, really concerned with throughput. So making the ROI or the pro forma for Interreg because it's an expensive drug was really not that difficult because getting patients out of the hospital so thoracic can do their next surgery or whatever made that business plan very, very easy. So, yeah. and I agree with Sia, like Interreg is, 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 is an integral part of this pathway without question. And, and I, if I could make a comment, Ted, I think if, if you don't have it because your institution doesn't want to do it, it isn't too expensive of a drug. And uh, I think there's phase four trials that show the return on investment of that is $2,500 a patient. So I think you can demonstrate that with the data. Any parting comments, Sarah? And then. I, yeah, I was just, I, to, to that comment, I would just say having worked in a place where there was no way we were ever going to have Alvin Mapam 
um, I still think you can actually be fairly aggressive with your non-narcotic pathway. Um, I but it's not as easy. We are working on using, we're using naloxicol here. Um, now we've replaced that because that is more cost-effective. And I think that there's more cost-effective um, uh, similar drugs that, that are gonna be on the market. That's gonna be very helpful here. I think that just the key things that I think we've kind of all been talking about here, you know, this is a checklist. This is about main, minis, diminishing variation. This is about doing things the same way and it's doing it in a way that works within your institution. I think if this is, this pathway, having this checklist is is critical to um, to success because there's just so many <laughs> moving parts in a cystectomy. Uh, these patients are so sick. These, this operation has the potential for so many different things to kind of go off off the rails. So having consistency is key, and it you can have a lot of variation. I think one thing about pathways is it's also key for, for pathways to be a little bit nimble because as data develops, you have to be able to evolve. Um, and so I do think it's important to constantly be evaluating and, and collecting, it's the counting measure, right? It's collecting the data. What is my actual average length of stay? How much blood do I usually use? What is my actual transfusion rate? And then starting to look at, it's only when you actually have numbers that you can actually start to move needles. So having having kind of a data-driven approach, I think is really critical. And then it's it's a team. Everybody's gotta be on board. You, you're, you're, your patient's on the team, they need to eat well, they need to hydrate, they need to stop smoking, they need to show up. Your team, your surgery team, you know, you're working on minimizing your operative time, you're working on doing everything the same way you always do it, handling the bowel in a specific way. And then taking patients through that post-op pathway, your anesthesia team, your nursing team, your, your PT, your OT, it's getting everybody on board together. And I think that that's actually one thing that having a checklist allows you to do. So that's why it's kind of, it's such an important, I think this has been a major innovation in how we care for these patients without a doubt. And, and whether you're doing it open like me or minimally invasively, I mean, the, there was the debate that um, Sia had at the SUO um, a couple of years ago where he made the point is like look at all this look at look at the benefits we're getting out of this team-based approach and just a really intelligent based approach it's not it's not one factor it's it's how we kind of integrate everything so. yeah and i'm going to give the uh, one one quick point to that when we did when jeff did with us like the small it was a very small randomized trial open in robotics we didn't see a length of stay difference it was a small trial but i credit the the, the pathway the, the eras to that difference because we weren't going to get much better than what we were doing with, with ERS open robotic. Yeah, so I'll get the final word to, uh, I was going to say our elder statesman, although Sam, I, I think we, I think I may be older than you. You're actually, uh, you look much younger and you're, you're younger at heart. You're 15 uh, seconds older than me. You were born first. Yeah. Uh, so I'm going to, so thanks to the panel. I always learn from all you guys. I think, uh, to sum it up quickly, expectations, understanding uh, the importance of that. Consistency, as Sarah pointed out, it's an iterative process, constant reevaluation. And then I think the bottom line that none of us have really touched upon that we all need to remember is that each of these patients are individual. And even though we've set up an algorithm, we need to understand that at times you're gonna need to pivot off of this uh, enhanced recovery clinical care pathway. Uh, and at first we were concerned that we wouldn't do that, but I think more than ever, we actually pay more attention to the outliers and are better able to recognize those and able to hopefully uh, uh, preemptively uh, address any issues that they may be having. But 
thanks to everyone and, and thanks for the invitation very, very much. Thank you for listening. We'll talk to you soon. Learn more by visiting our website, urologycovid.ucsf.edu.